This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, episode 102. And boys, this week, a powerful conversation. We get to speak with one of the heroes of the Jewish people, and I don't say that hyperbolically. This is a young man named Tzvi Gluck, who, for those involved in the areas where he dabbles, he needs no introduction. For everyone else, you'll soon understand why that is. Tzvi is the founder and director of Amudim, means pillars, but essentially is an organization based out of New York, helping young people deal with addiction, the aftermath of abuse and trauma through an incredible array of services, referrals and counseling and financial support. Just an amazing, amazing roster of chasadim, acts of kindness that Tzvi does and that his organization more broadly is involved in. He's a person who was so busy, it took me a very, very long time to actually sync up schedule-wise. He's just constantly on the move, constantly fielding calls, emergencies, and so on and so forth, but really with an air of humility and a sense of service. It's a beautiful thing to hear him describe and to observe how his passion comes through so strongly. He's really a person, although I had never met him before our discussion, I instantly felt a real kinship to him because he's a person whose life is mission-driven, which is something that I very much relate to. And like I said, he's also young and ambitious, but at this point, seasoned enough to have accomplished great things and to have the experience to be a real leader in his area of knowledge. Once again, I invite you to reach out about prospective speaking engagements, tales of a Jewish podcaster, lessons I've learned from 100 plus of the most interesting and inspiring Jewish personalities alive today. You can inquire about that as well as send comments and feedback to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. In addition, follow us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow, spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram. Jews, you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you are listening and help others who may not be that familiar with podcasting yet. Help them learn how to subscribe as well. I'm repeatedly surprised over and over that many people still are just not that familiar with this medium and don't even know that their phone perhaps comes with a native podcast app. Certainly the iPhone with the Apple podcast app. And they don't realize you search for the podcast and hit the subscribe button. And never have to think about it again. You get it downloaded every week into your podcast inbox. So if you are not yet subscribed, please do so. And if you are and know others who enjoy listening or would enjoy listening, please help them do so as well. And now to our conversation with Amudim, founder and director, and again, in my mind, real Jewish hero, Tzvi Glock. 
We are here with Tzvi Gluck, the founder of Amudim, which is an incredible organization in the Jewish community, helping young people who have suffered from addiction or abuse, help them return to lives of normalcy, get them the treatment and the support that they need. And Tzvi is an extraordinarily busy person, literally doing life-saving work day and night. It took us a long time to arrange this time slot simply because of his hectic and, and very, very populated schedule. But how are you, Tzvi? I'm great, Baruch Hashem. Good morning. And again, I, I apologize for the uh, back and forth, but it's an honor to be here with you. It's today. always great to have busy people involved and where uh, good things come to those who wait. So I've read and, and heard a lot about your organization and about you as, as sort of the pioneer behind the organization, of course, with many philanthropic supporters at your side. But let's give us a little bit of context, some background. A person doesn't uh, wake up and automatically jump into this kind of life-saving work from day one. Where are you from and what's your own personal background? So we'll get to that in a second. I just want to just add one thing. You know, Mendy Klein's Achrena was really the driving force behind uh, forcing me to, ch- you know, change the trajectory. So we say founder, I like to say the word co-founder because really uh, Mendy Alvashalom was the force behind it together with Maishi Wolfson, Sozain Gazant, and, uh, you know, so I just wanted to clear that up. Sure, and, for, um, and for those who don't know, Mendy Klein was a, a, a great Jewish philanthropist living in Cleveland who actually passed away quite recently, about, about a year ago now? Like, by will be two years, yeah. Almost two years, okay. Feels like just yesterday. I mean, I didn't know him personally, but was surely impacted by many of his great efforts, and he was a legend in the Jewish philanthropic world. So thank you for adding that in. So Tzvi, give us some background. So the background, it's kind of interesting, but uh, you know, we'll try to take the short version of it. <laughs> um, I was raised in Bar Park in a very, very communal-oriented family. My father's Zazan Gazetenstark, Rabbi Edgar Gluck, um, was one of the founders of Hatzala, was one of the co-authors of the New York State Autopsy Bill, which was the first state in the nation to craft a law that for religious purposes, people can object to autopsies unless it's a homicide or public health emergency. Um, my father's entire life was, was and still is, Baruch Hashem, built around helping others. And the truth is, I mean, he worked in politics, worked for government. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I, and I said this publicly many times. I always swore growing up, I'm never going to go into public service. <laughs> I got to be very clear. Um, my mother's design is, uh, you know, Freddie Gluck was also a very big driving force, very involved in... Uh, different boards of Maimonides Hospital, different other chesed projects. So uh, growing up in, in a world that was very mixed, I was raised in a more Hasidish, Hamish environment, went to Hasidish yeshivas when I was younger, then switched to Tarvadas, while at the same time being very open to the real world around me, uh, going with my father to political events, to government meetings, to communal things. So I really had a very unique and interesting experience growing up, different than most of my classmates. What do you, what do you think drove your father to get into all of that? Did he have a, that background or where was he coming from? So I have a couple of theories, but my father was born in Germany in 1936. Actually, very interesting. Um, this past circus, we went to uh, Ellis Island and I was trying to research the information about my father till I realized you can do it online at home. <laughs> and uh, we were in Ellis Island on October 17th, which was my son's English birthday. His bar mitzvah is 13 years old. And I spent hours trying to find my father's records and I couldn't. And I kept calling him saying, Ta, can you give me the misspellings this? 
October 18th, 12.30 something a.m. I was literally lying in bed with my iPad trying to figure it out and it clicked and I found his name. And lo and behold, my father left Germany October 18th, 1938. Unbelievable. Literally as the clock struck 12. It was, it was insane. And the craziest part was he left on Simchas Torah, on the Hebrew calendar. So again, very close to the time that we found it. Um, my father came to America, very similar story to many other people. My grandfather kept losing jobs because he wanted to uh, be able to uh, keep Shabbos. Um, you know, they were involved in, in two different communities, the Yaki community and the Rav Meshavik community. And then my father's mother passed away when he was a young child. And I, I, I credit very often people in, in public service, at least, you know, being that I learned from my father as, uh, I hate to say this, but people that had a point to prove. And, you know, he was fighting the odds. And at a young age, um, he was 18, 19 years old, learning in Bismarck Shalian, And there was a, an incident there in the local community. And he ended up running for a local office and getting all the yeshiva guys to vote for him. And entered the world of politics and then turning back over the position to the person that held it originally saying, I don't want to be this, but stop being such an anti-Semite because look at how quickly we can toss you out. Um, so my father has been a fighter since his teenage years. Um, and, you know, my father always taught me, always go the nice, the nice route first. You know, you try to be a man, try to appease people. But if that doesn't work, you know, we have a mission to accomplish. So my father has been doing this, I mean, literally his whole life, his entire life, um, has met with multiple heads of states in multiple countries, religious leaders in all around the world, and, and always for the purpose of benefiting, you know, Claudius Roland and the community at large. So I say this, growing up, you know, when I was 13 years old, I became a volunteer in my mommy's hospital in the emergency room on Fridays. I was in eighth grade and I, you know, just, I guess, to keep out of my mother's hair. And it was me and another friend. There was no formal volunteer program yet at Maimonides. And the simple job that we were doing, it's going to sound silly today because everything is automated, is as soon as the nurses or the techs would draw up the blood work from the patients, we would run it to the lab instead of having it wait. And very interesting, there was a few nurses got very upset at us because they were asked, why is it that, you know, on Fridays, the work's coming back quickly, the rest of the week, it's taking forever. <laughs> and the, the way they responded to it was they reached out to a bunch of community Rabbanim, some big name Rabbanim, and painted a picture that, you know, volunteers are not appropriate, you know, people aren't dressed appropriate, and we should stop the program. So these Rabbanim called in my father and the other father of the other boy, and basically said, we'd like your children to stop. And I was there with the other kid. And the other kid said, oh, okay, whatever the Rav says. And I turned to this one big Rav, the Rebbe, and I said to him in front of my father, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm willing to stop if you'll go instead of me. Whoa. And the Rebbe looked at me, looked at my father. My father goes, he's my son. And I continued volunteering there. When I was about 15, 16 years old, a very, very close friend of mine's uh, mother had passed away after battling cancer. And... Right after Shiva, I was in Avatan Yeshiva, but right after Shiva, which I came back in to be there for the whole Shiva, the entire house fell apart. There was no one to help the kids with homework, with food. This guy was working four jobs to support his family. And I basically stayed. I told my parents, I'm not going back to Yeshiva. I'm staying for another few weeks. And I, with the help of Douglas Jablon at Maimonides and my father and a few others, we opened up 
uh, an entity, we never actually uh, made bank accounts because we never needed to, called the National Cancer Bereavement Foundation. It's the first nonprofit I was affiliated with. And all we did was we set up big brother, big sister programs to help children whose parents passed away from cancer. That's all we did. Um, we did it for about, I would say, a little bit more than a year. Uh, I had gone back to yeshiva. We had set up a whole bunch of volunteers. We got a couple of support groups in Maimonides Hospital for the surviving spouses. And then another larger organization that was local agreed to take it over. And I, I walked away. I said, my mission was not to run an organization. My mission was to get the people the help that they needed. And I did that, you know, gracefully. I'm very happy about it. Um, went back to yeshiva. And then when I was 19 years old, two of my friends, unfortunately, had passed away um, within a few months of each other. One of them passed away from a driving-related accident secondary to being high on drugs. And the second one had taken his own life. And I, I was very heartbroken. I didn't know what to do. And I went to my father and I said, this is ridiculous. We got to do something. Our place had just opened up in, in Brooklyn. And I started volunteering at our place. And then there's another funny story. My father was going away. And I never forget, you know, we used to have a uh, Skytel pager. I remember this was a interesting story and my father used to have different volunteers that would cover for him when he was traveling you know this is pre forwarding cell phones and emails and i said to my father i don't even remember why i said todd give me the pager for this trip and i remember his face lit up he was like so excited that like here's the person who swore never to go into public service and literally two hours after his flight took off he was going to europe I get an emergency call about somebody that had passed away. It was a Sunday, I remember. It might have even been a holiday weekend, but for sure a Sunday. And I uh, went to my father's Rolodex, and I found the phone number to the chief medical examiner of New York City at the time. And I called this person up on his cell phone. Very few people had cell phones then. And I'll never forget what I said to him. I said, Doc, I don't know what I'm supposed to ask you to do because my father's on a plane. But here's the name of the person that died. Here's the funeral home that wants to handle the burial, can you please take care of this and call me back when it's done? And the medical examiner was like, okay. And I literally had to stay in my parents' house until the phone rang again. And about two hours later, he calls me and he says, two things, it's all taken care of, let the funeral home know they can go and take care of the burial. And please tell your father as soon as he gets back, I must meet with you and him. So my father comes back and I tell him the story and he's like, oh no, what did you do? <laughs> And uh, we show up at the chief medical examiner's office for this meeting. And uh, he turns to my father and he goes, your son has my favorite trait, chutzpah. And uh, let's make sure he deals with it the right way. So that was really my entry into the uh, field of public service in a non-formative matter. I do want to also mention a cute story with the uh, Skalene Rebbe's at Sal when I was about 16, 17 years old. I had gone to him uh, on a Purim. And... Um, you know, for purposes of full disclosure, I was not your typical straight A student throughout uh, high school. I visited multiple high schools over my uh, four <laughs> years. Want to spread um, the wealth. Spread I, you the know, wealth. I, I was testing out how many yeshivas I, I would be able to go to to know where to send my kids to. Um, <laughs> it was usually a, you know, difference of opinion between me and the uh, heads of the school. You know, they felt I should do something one way and I didn't agree. Um, you know, I say the joke I say is being Rabbi Gluck's son got me into all those high schools. It didn't keep me there. But um, I was going through some very interesting years. I will give credit to my parents. Never threw me out of the house. Never, you know, it was always with love and, and devotion. And I 
credit that to why I am where I am today. But um, in this uh, specific scenario, now I don't even remember what I was saying anymore. You see, this went to visit a great Hasidic Rebbe. Oh, so right. So I went to the Skolana Rebbe. Right. See, thank you. And um, I give him my name, and he looks at my name, and my name is Tzvi Yosef Avram. And he tells me Tzvi in the Lashon of Agdamas is Ratsa in his will. And he starts crying. And he says, we have to daven that your will will be to do good things. If we don't pray for that, we don't know what can happen. Because Yosef, your second name, the root is to be Mosef, is to add on to it. And he again starts crying. And he says, we have to pray that you have the will to do good things and to add on to it to make it stronger. And then he smiles at me and he goes, but thank God, your third name is Avram. So at least we know when it comes to chesed, you'll have comes to doing good deeds like Avram did, you will want to have the will to add on to it and do more. And that was always a story that stuck in my head. So after all these different things that had occurred, you know, and then with my friends passing away and joining our place is when I realized that, you know, there's a lot more to the world than just taking care of yourself. And I never wanted to do anything professionally. I, I maintained a job as a paramedic. I worked on ambulances. I worked in, in, in healthcare. Um, I then worked in real estate for a bit. Um, it was never something I wanted to do as a career choice, um, but it was something that I got very involved in. And through our place, I then started dealing with kids on the street. I then started dealing with them when they would get arrested. And then I started dealing with law enforcement and then the court systems. And then I took it up a level and I started dealing with them and finding them treatment. And then I found, you know, that there was a lot of people involved in, uh, I hate the term at risk because we're all at risk but we'll use it for terminology purposes. And I realized that there was a lot of people that were victims of abuse that were completely being disregarded. And I started shifting my focus to try to figure out how can we help those. And I did this as a lone soldier for many years, for about 15 years. What um, was missing at the other institutions? For example, our place, for those unfamiliar, I believe is kind of like a, a gathering spot in Brooklyn for uh, struggling teenagers to come and have a, a safe and wholesome place to hang out, right? What, what was missing in those environments? So it's not a question of missing. It's a question of, they do amazing work. And by the way, I still am proud to help them. I just got them two grants uh, within the last three years, totaling $500,000. Yeah. And I'll help any organization, but they do amazing work. It's a question of one of the things I've learned now, you know, five and a half years later running Amudim, is when people run organizations, it's extremely crucial that they stay focused on their mission. And very often that's where people fall and things start to happen that are not really that smart. Our place is an amazing program. It's a drop-in center for at-risk youth. They have some counseling there for them. They do a lot of great work, but the way I looked at it was, it was, and it still is, it's an amazing project, but they're, they're fixing the problem post facto. And one of the things that I felt, again, I had no way of wanting to take it to that level was, what we were missing was the preventative measures, the awareness, taking things to a, a different scale. So it wasn't a question of what was missing. It was just that wasn't their mission statement and this wasn't happening. So you went and started doing all this stuff on your own and helping kids in terms of preventative measures or what were you doing during that so at, long period? At that point, what I was doing was, is I was, sounding the alarm, talking from a soapbox about the issues that were happening in a much larger scale than an organization's capacity. I was putting myself on different people's YouTube channels. Again, the internet wasn't 
as uh, you know, accessible as it is today, but it was still uh, starting to expand. And I was starting to actually help people with the individual resources where Ruvain would have a problem. It, would, it wouldn't just be here, called this place. It would be guiding them, holding his hand. And I was doing this one person at a time, and it was getting in the way of my work. I'm not going to argue that. Um, but I felt that it was making a big difference on both sides of the coin. On one side, we're making a lot of noise. And on the other side, we're guiding people and holding their hands step by step. And again, there are so many amazing organizations and they still do amazing work. But in these areas, I felt that it was more that could be done and I was doing it on my own. What were some specific things that you would, you know, particular interventions that you would offer um, to, to young people that would reach out to you for help? So one of the big things I believe, and I hope it looks like it's working, was explaining to the families and guiding them to the fact that it's not only your child that has an issue, but if we can get the parents the proper care and get them to understand that they need to love their family member and they need to make sure that they're there to support them. And then working within the school system so that if you know, a high school student had an issue and was getting the proper help, we can get him back into school. You know, one of the, the pet peeves that I had, and again, this is from my own experiences, um, I thank God had great parents. Me being thrown out of multiple yeshivas, I still, you know, was able to bounce back, but many others weren't so lucky. So it was about really taking the puzzle approach and helping people navigate each piece of the puzzle to put them back step by step. And that was really something, and I was doing it as, as a lone soldier, meaning one by one, people would come to me and you know, I never advertised, it was never marketed. It was just people would call me and we would try to help them one by one and, and just literally getting the parents into therapy, sending them to organizations that had support groups, getting them to understand what their child or children were going through, getting the children to realize that they were loved and cared for. And just literally, and again, it was a, I'm not, you know, the impact on each one person was tremendous, but it was, it was, it was more on a micro scale, but it was helping the micro be able to turn into a macro, helping somebody that felt they had no future and then building the support structure around them to help guide them into a better and healthier setting. And you learned all of these things on your own. You kind of just, as you dealt with each case, would kind of learn where a person needs to go or who's available as resources. You didn't have training in that. So I, I did not have any formative training. I did learn it on my own, but I, I'm Baruch Hashem blessed that I had a lot of good people around me that were experts in different areas of whether it's mental health or communal work, or even like in those days when we needed to raise money, right? Like how do you raise money for someone who needs help? I mean, little did I realize how hard it really is. I thought that was hard then. Now I'm realizing the real burdens of, of fundraising, but um, it was really that I had good people guiding me. And I also had amazing resources where I can call someone up who's an expert in addiction. And they would be able to guide me to a bunch of different pieces for that. And I had other people that I was able to tap into that were experts in abuse and others that were expert in trauma and others. And I was able to really put the pieces together. And that was the way I learned. But yes, it was all self-taught practice. And early on, you were just raising money one case at a time. It doesn't sound like you even had an organization, right? There was no organization. There was no nothing. The way we would do it is, you know, I'd find out, uh, you know, this person, Dobbins, in this shul, I would go to the row. First, I would say, does the shul have a fund? You know, and you have to understand that 10 years ago, trying to get even a dollar for therapy or for rehab wasn't what it is, what it is today. It was, the world was not as open to it. You know, you didn't have 
organizations that, you know, I'll give you an example. Like I credit relief tremendously, Rabbi Binyamin Babad, for really opening up the concept of mental illness to the firm world. You know, people didn't get it. So it was, it was very difficult, but I would like go to the rub of the shul. And then many times the rub would say, oh, this is a person that prays in my shul. I'll, I'll help raise the money. Or he'd say, listen, if you raise the money from people, we can write the check to the shul so that we can pay for the treatment. But it was completely, um, I mean, totally not in any formal setting, no structure. It was just case by case, chicken without a head, working out of my car, you know, for lack of a better word. And while you were doing this, were you starting to get any pushback from people that, you know, hey, you are exposing the underbelly of the community or something of that nature? So I have to say, it's an interesting question I get all the time. Um, I definitely got some pushback, but it was very minimal compared to what I saw was going on around me. And I credited it for two things. First of all, being my father's son. So a lot of these Rabbanim that were very vocal and against the areas that I was starting to deal with or pulling out, you know, the rug from, you know, everything being brushed under it, they relied heavily on my father for other communal things. So they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Plus, as I started getting more involved in community service, they were starting to rely on me for other areas of help. So it was almost like, I know they don't like me, but they're tolerating me. So let me take advantage of it while I could, because the day they don't need me, they're going to come all out against me. And that was really the, the method. And then about, uh, let's say it's five years ago, about 10, 10 or so years ago, um, a friend of mine who's a big philanthropist, I'm not going to mention his name because I know he'll sh shoot me, not literally, don't worry, uh, <laughs> sat me down one day and said, listen, I, I see what you're doing. People are talking about it, but it's completely ridiculous. Let me just help you out. I'll give you a desk. I'll give you an office. I'll give you a salary. You just focus on helping people. Stop trying to make money. Stop trying to do deals in real estate. It's not meant for you. And just, this will be my chesed. You can, you're helping so many people. I want to help you do that. And at that point, it sort of became, I'm going to say, a career without it being a career. But at least, you know, my bills were covered and life was good. And I was very happy with that system. I got to tell you, it was really, I didn't have to come to people for money, which I never wanted to do. The people that were coming to me for help, we didn't have to ask them to pay for anything because there was nothing that I needed from them. And I was able to do what needed to be done without, you know, I, I understood the concept that Yisro taught Moshe. But when you're looking for people to be involved, at that point it was the Sanhedrin, but even in public service in general, it should be people that don't need money. Now there's two categories. Either you could be rich, which, you know, works for some people, or you can be supported by an outside source so that you're not reliant upon what you're doing in order to pay your bills. And I felt that that was amazing. So I was very happy. I and was this philanthropist also supporting the treatments and things like that? For, for oh, this, this, I mean, in certain cases, yes, but I, that wasn't, the goal here was I'm helping you. You, you just help people. I'm, I'm helping you. That's my component. And life was good. In other words, we were helping people and each person that came in, we were trying to help with whatever they needed, whether it was a legal issue, whether it was an addiction issue, whether it was an abuse issue, whether it was a government-related issue, and you know, and things were—I mean, things were good. It was—I never dreamt of uh, it going any further. <clears throat> and, and I'll say this specific philanthropist, about six and a half years ago, started planting seeds in my head. And he's like, "Svi, listen, what you're doing is great. I'm happy to support you, but there's only so many people that you can, you know, help in what you're doing. I think it's time to step it up a little bit and really take it to the next level." 
And I, I looked at him and I said, I'll be honest. I don't have to raise money. I don't have any pressures. I'm not interested. And he's like, yeah, but there's a whole world out there. So I think you should consider it. And he was, you know, encouraging me, not pushing me, encouraging me, but uh, I, I was figuring out how to avoid it. Let's be honest. So at that point, again, you were in this kind of comfortable situation, a really sort of safe place for yourself, helping a lot of people, but, uh, you know, without the overarching burdens of a major organization and things like that, it seems like he was prodding you and you, you weren't quite taking the bait. So at what point did that change? So uh, that's interesting. So uh, Maishi Wolfson, who's been a, a friend for years, I'm friends with his children. I mean, we're part of the family, I have to say. It's more than friends. We're family. Um, had made a bris. His, uh, his daughter had had a baby boy. And it was right after the patira of his father, the, the legendary Zeb Wolfson Zephyr Levracha, who, I mean, has changed the world of tzedakah and philanthropy and, and the from world forever. And this was going to be the first boy to be named Zeb after the patira. So after the bris, Moshe said, can you come to my house? Let's schmooze for a little bit. So I went to his house, and while I was sitting in his house, the bell, doorbell rings, and some guy shows up wearing a cowboy hat, and I don't ask him his name. He doesn't ask me my name. We're just starting to schmooze. And after about 20, 30 minutes of schmoozing, he mentioned something about a situation that was going on. He's not throughout a situation, no names. He's like, oh, I'm involved in this thing, and... The person is coming back from Israel and there's some issues. And I looked him straight in the face and I said, what issues? It's already been pre-resolved. He actually landed at six o'clock this morning. Whatever needed to be done was taken care of. He's already, you know, out able to confront the issues that he has to deal with. And um, things are great. And he looks at me and goes, how do you know? And what are you talking about? And I said, I mean, I know because I'm dealing with this case. And there was some rich guy. I don't even know who, who put down a couple hundred thousand dollars cash to cover the expenses or whatever needed to be dealt with. So if I don't have to deal with the money factor and just managing the systems, it was great. And the guy turns to me and he goes, what do you mean? I thought so-and-so is dealing with it. And he gives me a name. And I said, yes, so-and-so is dealing with it. He's running point on this piece, but the different pieces of the puzzle I'm dealing with, and I'm the one that's been helping him, you know, on his component. And I went through some of the other factors. So this guy turns to me and goes, maybe now it's time for me to tell you that I don't know about rich guy, but I'm the guy that put down that money. And Moshe Wolfson looks at him, looks at me, goes, you guys don't know each other? And I'm like, no. And he says, Tzvi, this is Mendy Klein. Mendy, this is Tzvi Glock. And Mendy looks at me, he goes, you're Tzvi Glock. I'm expecting somebody much older. <laughs> he this big hug. And he says, why have you been ignoring my office requesting to meet with you? I'm trying to meet with you for a year already. I said, you're trying to meet with me? What are you talking about? I check my email in front of him. And I see that I got an email from Karen on behalf of Robert Klein from some company in Cleveland, Ohio, requesting a meeting. And I just put it into spam. Uh, who is this person? What do they, what do they want from me? <laughs> Literally, that was the, this is, and as we're sitting there, he turns to me and he goes, you know, hearing all these things we've been talking about the last half hour, I think uh, you should come move to Cleveland. We have no problems there. Now, I was drinking a Diet Coke. I remember this like it was yesterday. Literally, whatever was in my mouth came out my nose, my ears, <laughs> my mouth, and all over him. Literally, like I just splashed him. And he's like, what was that about? And I said, Cleveland? You know how many families I'm dealing with in Cleveland? And he goes, yeah. Like who? I said, I can't tell you who. 
but I could give you the names of the Rabbanim and the Askanim that I'm dealing with there, but I can't tell you who. And he says, yeah, give me three names. So I give him three names and he calls them. And he says, uh, do you know Tzvi Glock? He doesn't even talk about them. First one's like, yeah, he's the one that helped us when someone so needed a rehab. And, and he goes, what about, the, he calls it the next guy, do you know Tzvi Glock? He goes, yeah, when so-and-so's kid was thrown out of school and those schools wanted to take them in, Tzvi was able to arrange for it. And he turns to me and he goes, we have these problems in Cleveland. And I, I remember looking at him like, are you living under a rock? And he calls up his assistant then, Karen. Now I happen to know her very well. <laughs> says, uh, I'm flying. Please put me on the next flight back. And I want you to please set up a meeting with me and all the local rabbis here in Cleveland. And this was part one. Okay. A few days later, I, I get a phone call. I'll never forget this. It was like, I don't know, in the evening, like maybe 9, 10 o'clock. And Maishi Wolfson has Mendy Klein on a conference call. And Mendy starts talking and right away starts telling me how we're going to solve these problems. Like he's laying out a plan. And I, I remember being uh, myself, but a real machutzef. Real, I mean, it was just, and I start yelling at him. I said, really? You're going to call me and tell me what to do? You know how many times I've had people call me up. They're going to help. They know what they're doing. They become experts. I said, I don't need you to give me your advice. I'm done with people's advice. I know what I need to do and I'm doing it. And you can, you know, wave your money elsewhere or something to that. I was really, I was really not nice. And I, it happens to be, I'm not defending it, but I was, had just finished dealing with a very, very sensitive case and my emotions were very, very high. It was just the perfect storm. And I hang up the phone and I'll never forget, Maishi sends me a text message. What did you just do? You don't know this guy is real and I can't believe you did that and you're embarrassing me. Okay, it is what it is. I then get a phone call from Maishi. And he says, what's your schedule? Mendy's flying in to meet with you. And I'm like, after that phone call? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he, he likes that passion, which is the term we use now. It's passion. It's not anger. It's not anger, <laughs> it's passion. It's all, it's all how you frame it. <laughs> and, uh, and he comes in, and I take him unannounced to visit our place, to visit uh, Ronnie's Rebels. I took him to visit... Um, Cola Williamsburg, KW. I took him just to see what was going on. And these are all different places that were helping service kids. All different struggling. places to help service kids. I took him to, uh, to one of the OHEL locations. I took him or we spent the day. And about two months later, this is where it gets funny and then we'll get into the crux of it, but the background is so amazing and beautiful. I get a text message from Mendy Klein that says, please meet me at forget the name of the restaurant. It was a fancy restaurant uptown. I think Prime Grill. Yeah, it was Prime Grill. Please meet me at Prime Grill. Don't be late. 6.30. Very important call meeting. I get this text message. I mean, I'm not one to say no for a free dinner at a nice place. And I get in my car and I start driving there. And when I get there, I see him and I see the table of the who's who of the Jewish philanthropic world sitting at this table. And I say hello to Mendy and everybody at that table's eyes rolled. I, I got to tell you, as soon as they saw me, their eyes rolled. Yeah, you just, you're just the pisher. Either the pisher or the guy that talks too much or the guy that has no boundaries or whatever you want to call it. You know, I, I had built the reputation. The good thing was most of those guys knew me and knew my father and I've been involved with them on many different things, but never in any formative or professional fashion. And one of them says to Mendy, why do you invite Svi here? He goes, why? because Tzvi is dealing with the underbelly of the problems and it's important that you hear about it so you know. 
And as he says that, Tzvi Bloom walks up behind me. And they need to pull another chair to make room for Tzvi Bloom. Now let me pause and tell you what really happened. Mendy Klein texted me instead of Tzvi Bloom. And he realized it about 10 minutes later. And he then called Tzvi Bloom on the phone to make sure that Tzvi was going to the meeting, which he was on the way to. Now, Mendy could have texted me and said, I'm sorry, it was a mistake, it was meant for Tzvi Bloom. Or I could have gotten there and he could have said to me, you know what, go sit by another table, I'll pay for your dinner. But he didn't want to embarrass me after he invited me, so he made it as if he wanted me to go to that dinner. And I must add, I did steal the rest of the evening from whatever organization that dinner was supposed to be for. So this wasn't even on the agenda for that evening. They weren't supposed to be talking about this. Not at all. They were dealing with some serious call issues pertaining to the Jewish world, but nothing to do with the work that I was doing. And then a few weeks later, Shlomo Werdiger had a breakfast in his house for an organization that he's very involved with. I believe it was Chush, but I don't know for sure. And Mendy invited me to join him at the breakfast. Intentionally. <laughs> Intentionally, you know, at this point it was intentional, yeah. And at the breakfast, Mendy called a bunch of the philanthropic people that were there and said, we got to go have a meeting in the house, very important. And myself and a few other people, totally ad hoc, presented on what we're dealing with and the issues in Kalei Yisrael. And that meeting became known in our world as the Stoll Werdiger Basement Meeting. And that was the actual meeting that led to the concept of, okay, we need to create something and start dealing with this. So that was really the beginnings of how Amudim got started. It's fascinating. You know, I want to just pause there for a second and ask you, it sounds like to a degree, the people, these great philanthropists, very serious people, and they kind of saw you as, I don't want to, you know, be dismissive, but kind of almost like a sideshow, like, oh, this, this youngster, you know, he's doing, helping out with some kids and you know, but they didn't take you that seriously as evidenced by the, the eye rolls and so forth. And that could be a very difficult transition to be able to transform yourself into someone who's perceived as a real thought leader and a real a person of great responsibility and import in a particular field. How were you able to make that shift and to then be seen by these people to be entrusted with this full-blown mission as opposed to just kind of, a, you know, a young person agitating and helping out sort of on the side? I don't know. No, I'm being honest. Um, I, I wonder that all the time myself. Um, I don't think I changed, meaning my personality didn't change, the way I go about things. But what I think is that automatically being thrown into the spotlight and all of a sudden having backing and like Revelia Brudney agreeing to become the, you know, the rabbinic, uh, you know, authority that we, uh, you know, that we deal with for any Amudim related matters. And I think it literally, it was just a growth. It was a growth. It wasn't, I didn't like wake up one day and say, okay, now I'm a professional. And you didn't become more corporate or something overnight. I mean, I did and I didn't. And, and I'll explain what that means. One of the things that Amudim prides itself on is on transparency, on uh, fiscal responsibility. I mean, we have on our website, our audited financials, in addition to our 990s, for everybody to see. You know, we, we pride ourselves on that. These are things that, I, you know, listen, I've always been the guy of the belief, go big or go home. And whatever you do, you got to do it right. So once the idea came up that we got to start something, I, I, I read books, I, I met with people that ran other organizations. I said, okay, what do I need to know? In other words, if I'm going to do this, 
Um, let me figure it out. And it was just more of a transition. And there's another part also. I mean, you know, they say the joke, the youth is wasted on the young. It's true. In other words, the attitude and the demeanor that I had then would not work. And it's just a reality. But I, I definitely aged and I definitely had a lot of great wake-up calls and great experiences that sort of helped me grow into this role. I never envisioned it in a million years. I never thought that this is something I would do. And I'm also going to say that, you know, from day one, Mendy Klein said to me, we're going to do this and you're not going to have to raise any money. <laughs> Similar to the comfort zone that I had with the previous philanthropist that helped me, if I don't have to raise money, everything else can be dealt with. You know, it's the money that's the hardest part. Um, obviously, that's not true. And it wasn't true when he was alive. But when he was alive, it was much easier because he had all these other friends that he would reach out to. And for lack of a better word, they're all Baruch Hashem involved in so many other amazing causes that Amudim is not their, their main thing. But I guess I grew into it. This wasn't like, I mean, do I wish I would have had some sort of training or something, you know, from the beginning? I'm going to give you a simple example, okay? It's going to sound strange, but um, it's just the truth. When we started the organization and we had different clients that we needed to help for different things and, and money was raised, whether it was therapy, rehab, whatever it might be. Now, remember, in the early days, I had no problem trying to raise money for everybody that needed anything. Today, if we would have raised in 2018 the dollar amount that every person called us and said, can you pay for my treatment for this place? Can you pay? We would have had to raise $38 million in 2018 alone. But in the early days, we didn't know that. But I also... We didn't have a full accounting department. We didn't have anything. Everything was, you know, three people and then it went to four and then to five in the early days. And I needed to come up with a solution of how do we manage money? So I went down to the bank and I explained to the bank manager what we do. And the bank manager looked at me and literally broke down crying. I did not realize this, but his son had passed away from an overdose. Oh my. And he turns to me and he says, so you're trying to find a way to have separate accounts for every person that you're helping and not pay the fees, I'm going to waive the fees for you. You can do it. And literally for the first four and a half, five years of Amudim, we maintained hundreds of savings accounts in Chase Bank because how else are you careful not to mingle funds? Right. Now, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have understood that you can save it, whether it's in QuickBooks or in other you know, systems, I mean, now we've grown over there, you know, between 2014 and 2019, in addition to growing to 30 employees, we have an entire fiscal department. I have a CFO, an accountant, and a bookkeeper, but I didn't know these things. And there was nobody to teach me. So I had to think outside the box and say, okay, so what could I do that will help me get this? The end goal was to get people the money that was allocated to them without mixing it with anybody else. So you open up hundreds of bank accounts. Honestly, that's ridiculous. It's an accountant's nightmare. But that was how I learned. And, and I'm using that as one example. That's the same example of every component, you know, and I'm with them. Today, we have a full-time clinical director. You know, back then, we had five members of a clinical advisory board, and they would be available for the case managers. I mean, I'll give you another good example. I found an email that I sent Mendy Oliver Shalom in 2015, begging him for more money because we were opening up an average of four new cases a week, and we couldn't handle the workload we're averaging between 40 and 55 new cases a week now. So it's, again, it's, it's a learning curve. And a lot of it is, you know what? We made some mistakes along the way and we got to figure it out to do it better. But the one thing that I always was very strict about and I still am was 
compliance, transparency, and ethical reporting. So if we're helping one person in three areas of help, it gets reported as one case, not three. We're not looking to increase anything. We have, I mean, we have enough people that we're helping. We don't need to do that. But had the statistics, right? But we, right. We don't need to, you know, it comes to, to money, a dollar is a dollar. We can't pay a penny to any vendor or therapist or treatment program if we don't have a W-9 on file, if we don't have an actual invoice, we don't have an actual client account number that it's allocated to with a case number and a service number. So that was something from day one I always knew. You need to do this. You don't want to end up in jail, and by the way, not because people are criminals, which some people are, but very often, especially in the nonprofit world, people make mistakes because they're not careful. But then there's also the flip side to that, which is if a person owns a business and they're investing in a business, so they invest in the infrastructure, they invest in marketing, advertising, promotions. When it comes to the nonprofit world, and this is a pet peeve I have, people expect us to do the work that major corporations do by selling lemonade. It's just not realistic either. So it's, there's definitely learning curves, and I, we learn every day. Every day we're learning something new, and I'm learning new things and how to deal with things and how to get better at it, and the strive is for excellence. And my ultimate goal, and I say this proudly, is to shut Amudim down. My goal is not to be open. My goal is that there should no longer be a need. And the other goal is to develop Amudim into a way, which Baruch Hashem we're getting to, that it's not reliant on one person. You know, God forbid something happens to me, organization shouldn't fall because of that. So it's really a question of building up to that. So to answer your question, it was a lot of learning, a lot of speed bumps, and that's how we got to where we are today. Describe a typical case that would come. You said 40 to 55 new cases per week. I imagine some of them are more serious than others. Some of them require a lot more uh, intervention and so forth. But what would be a typical case that would cross your desk? Why would somebody call? So there's no such thing as a typical case. And I don't say that to sound cheesy. I'm saying it to be factually correct. Every person that comes to us, the only thing typical about them is that they're atypical and they're an individual and we have to think of it that way. Because first of all, every person is different. Every person's issues are different, their needs are different. And as soon as we create a cookie cutter mold of this is what we do for A and this is what we do for B, then we're no longer providing that service that we provide. Amudim, very simply stated as a comprehensive clinical case management organization. That means our staff are clinicians. They're not doing the clinical treatment per se. And the reason why we opted to hire clinicians instead of training people just as case managers is because we realized the sensitive nature that people are coming to us with, whether it's about themselves, their spouse, their children, a loved one, a neighbor, a friend, a student, a teacher, it makes no difference. They need proper handholding figuratively through the process. And having someone who's clinically trained can assist. So for example, somebody reaches out because they have a loved one that they just realized has an addiction problem, right? So very often the person who is struggling with the illness, which addiction is an illness, and we need to accept that as reality as opposed to blaming the addict for everything. Many times that person doesn't see that they need help. So there's the train of thought that people always say, oh, until the person is ready, don't call us and they hang up the phone. Our philosophy is different. Oh, the person's not ready to help yet? No problem. Let's help you. Let's get you to an Al-Anon meeting, a Gannon-on meeting, an R-Anon meeting. Let's get you to a a peer-to-peer support group. Let's give you the tools so you learn how to deal with it so that we can together find a way to help your loved one. So it's not just the process of finding somebody the proper therapist or the proper treatment center or the proper course of action, but it's making sure 
that the entire structure, and it's literally taken what I did 15 years ago as a lone soldier of trying to put the pieces together and just doing it more structured and having the clinicians that I'm with do that. So I'm just running a report right now as I'm talking to you. So this report gets generated in a seven-day capacity so that every week when we send out our weekly emails, which has a chart of all the new cases that were opened that week, we get it. So in the last seven days alone, we had four cases. Uh, let me go down from top to bottom. So in the at-risk segment, we had three new cases that were opened. We had one in child abuse. Uh, we had three in prescription drug addiction, uh, two in alcohol addiction. Uh, we had... 21 mental health related, which includes therapy referrals, eating disorders, and people uh, with attempted suicides. I think this week we had two cases uh, that are classified as attempted suicide and one is suicidal ideation. Uh, three cases of spousal abuse, two cases of sex addiction, nine cases of sexual abuse. But here's where it gets tricky. This is a total of 44 individuals that have come to us for help in the last week. But if I want to break it down by target issues of within those 44 individuals, there's 147 categories that those 44 individuals fall into. And we break this down to the minute because if we're getting somebody's help, we need to know. So we break it down by anxiety, depression, attempted suicide, insurance assistance, bereavement related, bipolar, bullying, child abuse, child neglect. Uh, death-related, depression, eating disorder, and the list goes on, you know, down the list. And the reason why it's important that we know this is for a couple of things. First of all, keeping good statistics and good data is the only way you can help with prevention. Otherwise, you can't even start with that. And the other thing is we have to protect our staff from burnout. So people saying, oh, this case manager is managing 50 cases and this one's managing 80 or 30 or 100, but it really depends on each case and the severity of it and, and how difficult it is. So we can have somebody that's managing less cases, but those cases are inclusive of so many target issues that are being addressed. That doesn't mean they have less cases. They might have less physical clients, but their workload is still overburdening. Um, plus it also gives us, you know, we're, I'm a big data freak and everybody makes fun of me because I say data is the king to knowing prevention and to knowing what works. So we track everything from, age, community of origin, family background. And every couple of months, we run these insane reports, literally, of are there correlations between issue A and issue B? And where do we see you know, things that are linked? And that's how we're able to figure out which treatment works best, which therapists, you know, who has better results in clients graduating sooner than later, which people are happy with which programs. You know, how much money are we able to save the community because we have relationships with a multitude of programs and therefore we get scholarships and discounts from them that we pass straight, you know, straight to the client and their family. What ages are different things happening? Is there any correlation? And, and based on these numbers and figures, we're able to roll out different initiatives, whether it's Amudum initiatives or whether we help other organizations with initiatives, which we're very happy to do based on the data that we've collected. And we now have, I mean, we started using the CRM that we have now about a little bit less than five years ago. So we have a good solid four complete years of real data mining that has really been tremendous. So it's to the purpose why numbers are so important to me is because it, it helps you with quality improvement, quality assurance, quality of care. It helps us with fiscal responsibility and management. And 
the primary thing is it helps us help the clients to get the best services that they need. You mentioned the idea of burnout and, you know, emotional overload. How do you deal with those kinds of things and the tragedies? I heard you on a different program once describing the high number of overdoses or suicides. I forgot the exact statistic, but it was something very sobering and very frightening to hear and depressing, quite honestly. And that was just hearing about it, you know, on a, on a show. You're in the, in the thick of it. How do you deal with that? Do you have serious boundaries that you draw? What's your coping strategy? So first and foremost, I have an amazing wife. And I mean that who is, I mean, Aviva is a tremendous support structure and rock and supportive. I mean, just a few months ago, I got a very, very interesting job offer for a very, very high salary from a secular nonprofit without any fundraising requirements. Wow. And this would mean I could pay my tuition on time every month without any problems. Pass it on. I'm kidding. <laughs> my wife turned to me and, and said, not that I was thinking of taking it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, well, it may have crossed my mind that I love what I do. But my wife turned to me and said, if you do that, then I'm done with you. And I'm like, oh, it's that easy? No. Um, and I said, why? And she goes, well, let's be practical. Everything that I'm with them is what you were doing anyway. Now there's people to do it. If you go and take this other job, I'm with them is going to potentially close, which means that these people won't get help, which means people will end up dying or more people will end up dying. And I'm not married to a murderer. Straight to my face. And then she tells me the second reason was because let's be honest, you're going to go get this job, make good money, still be taking phone calls all day from everybody that needs help without an entire support staff to do it. And then you'll end up losing that job and have nothing. Um, but that's number one. The second thing is, and I'm very proud to say this active therapy. I go to therapy every week and it's extremely crucial both for dealing with my own components and dealing with the, the issues that we see every day. Um, and I have, I have very good rub on them in my life. I have, very good uh, structures of what we, you know, where we have to get to and how we have to do it. Um, but really it's between my wife and therapy are the two main conduits to what uh, are helping me with everything we're dealing with. And for your case managers, how do you ensure that they stay sane? <laughs> um, we, so first of all, you have to staying sane. I can speak for myself. That's assuming I was sane. So you can't <laughs> ask me, I'm happy you didn't ask me about staying sane because I never was and I never will be. As far as the case managers, so we have an amazing clinical director, um, Miriam Lankry, who's really top shelf and, and creates an amazing environment for them with peer-to-peer -peer support, with outlets, with healthy breaks. And we have a lot of benefits to help people, whether it's extent, you know, additional personal days that they get to take that they don't get back pay for or other things. Plus, we also have a program that our staff, again, we can't force people to do it, but those that want it, if they want to go for therapy, we will cover their entire cost of therapy as part of their job, nothing to do with their salary. And the same goes uh, for their spouses, for those that are married, you know, we're, we're not, so we, we try to do whatever we can to assist. I mean, we also have other programs, whether it's uh, a dinner or a lunch or, uh, you know, different times a year that we do things as a team. We do a lot of team building exercises. Sometimes it's the entire Amudim staff, because let's be realistic. I mean, the case managers take the brunt of it, 100%. But the people in the finance office do too. You know, it's not just, oh, we're cutting checks. They're reading these invoices. They're hearing the stories. I mean, you have to remember also that the interesting thing about Amudim is in many social service and mental health related entities, people have a variety of types of cases. Some are more severe, some are less severe. You know, some are easier to deal with, some are harder. I said, at Amudim, 
and it's just the reality, you know, we're blessed that we don't have that luxury. The people that are coming to us for help, you know, they're coming at the end of their rope or it's something that severe that, that they can't avoid. So when you look at things from that nature, you know, we have to go the extra mile for the staff to show them how much we value them and make sure that they're able to maintain, you know, their lifestyle and as healthy as possible. Today, what does your day look like? I imagine it's not as much of the hands-on because you have all these case managers. Are you primarily fundraising, organization building? Where are you on a daily basis? So it depends who you ask. (laughs) Um, If you ask my board of directors, I should be primarily fundraising, which I should be, but, and and we're trying to get to it, um, but it takes a lot of time and energy. Um, So it's very much a mix. And that is, even though I don't deal with the individual cases anymore um, on a hands-on day-to-day component, but whenever there's like a serious issue that evolves throughout a case, whether it's dealing with a community leader, a rabbi, a top clinician, or multiple parties involved, and, and you know, there are things that need like that extra lift. So I do, you know, get involved and deal with that. Again, only if I need to. But as I said, you know, Amudum deals with so many severe cases that that's a pretty often component. So that does happen. Um, I'm also spending a lot of time. I mean, the last year and a half, we completely revamped our entire operations, our back end, our finance office, our clinical oversight. And we're just continuing on that structure, which yes, I am trying to focus now more on the development and fundraising. Um, but it's really difficult because I don't have, you know, a fundraiser working for us. And we're in a very unique spot where we've interviewed multiple people, but we get it from all sides. And I don't blame anybody for this. It's just a reality. We don't really have alumni because a lot of people that we've helped want to forget that we existed. And we understand that, you know, they're hearing the word Amudim is a trigger. We're happy that they're doing better. So alumni, we don't really have that much. There's a lot of the people on, you know, the right, either they're involved in so many other amazing causes. I mean, in the Orthodox Jewish world, there are so many causes and, and they're funded. So they can't afford or they have their other interests. And then there are those that won't support us because we represent that component of, you know, uh, embarrassing the community and talking bad about it, which, you know, it is what it is. And then on the left side of the coin, we have the people that say, we're not going against the rabbis enough, or we're not going against the community enough. And they want to see more anger in, in how all these people are problematic. So we end up being left with a very small potential donor pool as far as who we can get to. So even when we interview fundraisers and they see the reality, they're like, oh, we can't do this. This is not your traditional organization that has a good cause that can sell. So it's very, very tough. We do have now, Baruch Hashem, there was a donor of ours who sponsored, in addition to their annual donation, a, a consulting company to come in and, and try to really review from the inside out what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are. And they started the process about a week ago. So that takes some time out of my hands. Um, but a lot of what we're doing is development, further growth, new programs, new initiatives. And, uh, you know, I'm the one that, you know, puts together the, the planning of it. And then we find the team to deal with it. So we have like these school initiatives where we go into schools and we do educational programs for the staff, for the parents, for the students. Um, we, we partnered with uh, another organization that we've, uh, or I say we partnered, where we're, I'm raising the money to help fund a project for another organization, to call it what it is which is developing a school-based curriculum from fifth through 12th grade on social and emotional competency and learning. 
again, that's a huge project. And instead of trying to focus on two or three schools that we can go in and teach it to, we're building it on a curriculum format to get it everywhere. And we're building three different versions of this program. One for the, you know, ultra, ultra orthodox school settings so that the material will be culturally appropriate and sensitive for their clientele. One for the more middle of the road and one for the modern orthodox type schools. And it's, you know, people always said to me, oh, that's insane. Why don't you just make one? Whoever wants it, wants it. Whoever doesn't, doesn't. And I said, because if we want to shut our mudum down, we need to help come up with something that's going to make that a reality. So without proper education and, and positive education, teaching people their strengths, not their weaknesses, talking about healthy decision-making, healthy living, that's what's important. And it's evidence-based and it's scientific. So when we first figured out about this type of curriculum, we went to a bunch of other organizations that deal with schools, educational programs, and either they laughed at us and said, this is a few million dollars to put it together the right way, we don't have it. Or they said, no, we have something that we're doing and we go into schools you know, once a year and it's great. And I was like, you know, okay, if no one else is gonna do this, and this is the real key in my opinion to shutting Amudim down, or at the very least, minimizing Amudim's work by 80%. I mean, at the least, it's gotta be done. So we found a few great educators that were working on something and we basically said to them, please go do this and we'll, we'll find the money, but this has to be done. And I can tell you that this program is currently in 38 schools this year and uh, only about 40% of the material is actually completed already. I mean, hopefully by next year it'll be fully completed. So it's things like that, coming up with ideas that are going to benefit the greater good that I have to figure out a way to put it together. So. I'm busy with a lot of that. And then on the communal side, there's still a lot of other areas uh, that I try to help people with that are not necessarily Amudim related, but still important that need to be addressed. And, you know, so uh, I, I am uh, unfortunately not, I wish I was, but I'm not sipping, uh, you know, uh, some drink sitting on a beach someplace, you know, and twiddling my thumbs. We are pretty busy. I hope you get to do that every once in a while, perhaps. Um, I'm actually going on my first real vacation in 17 years in two weeks. Oh my gosh. So, okay, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to make you disclose where you're going. <laughs> I'm not disclosing where I'm going. And the deal is I won't even have my phone with me there, or at least that's what my wife thinks. That's what your wife says, at least. Figure it out. Just in closing, two more questions. First of all, what, what does the name Amudim mean and, and why did you choose that name? You know, everything has to be a story with me. I can't just give you a simple answer. <laughs> so the name Amudim is actually Pillars. But why we chose it was my wife and I um, like to study um, Perkei Avos, the ethics of our fathers, on, on Shabbos afternoon with our kids. And at the point when, you know, Maishi and, and Mendi, Allah Shalom, to separate between the living and the dead, said we're going to do something, we had gotten to the Mishnah of on three pillars do the world stand and we were trying to think of all Shabbos my wife and I from when we were learning this in the morning until after Shabbos uh, you know so let's come up with a name something about world olam chesed and I said to her listen a couple of rules nothing with the letters ch <laughs> I said nothing that can't be pronounced by anybody and if it's mispronounced they still know what they're saying and it's got to be something relatively short and it has a domain name available. Those were my criteria. And I, I was playing with Google Translate on the word pillars, on, on pill, the, the, the pillar single, pillar plural, and, and, and on the world. And we just went through a whole bunch of things. And then at one point, I, I somehow the word Amudim popped up on Translate. 
and I then put it into English and I went to GoDaddy and I saw that amudim.org was available, .com wasn't, and I figured that's perfect, it's pillars. And what the symbolic component for me was, pillars have a few different meanings to it. It can either mean that somebody can help be a pillar for somebody else, a pillar of support. It could mean that the person can be a pillar for themselves, or it could be a combination of the two. So when we finalized the name and created the logo, it was the concept was Amudim is here to be pillars for those who need a pillar to lean on, but with the goal of making sure they can be pillars for themselves so they can help themselves and those around them. So that's really where the name, uh, where the name came from and uh, why it's so important for what, you know, what we do. Beautiful. And just finally, can you share maybe one or two success stories? Just, uh, you know, there's a lot of gloom and doom and a lot of, you know, I'm sure very depressing stories that you deal with, but there's also many, many successes, which is why you do what you do. Can you share maybe a vignette, obviously without personal details, but something that can give, give our listeners a picture of what can emerge from these incredible efforts? So I have to say, first of all, we thank God have many more success stories than not, because otherwise, even with the best self-care therapy and compassion, it wouldn't help. Okay. Because if we don't see the fruits of our labor, it can never benefit. But I can just give you, I mean, we have so many. Um, one that comes to mind, this was a beautiful story. Uh, I was by the Kotal with some of my staff. Um, we had gone to Israel for a conference and we were there Friday night. And I'll never forget this. We're standing right by the section where the ramp becomes flat, walking to the Kotal along the left wall. And some guy just jumps to his knees and starts like hugging me. I have no idea who this guy is. And I, I right away tell one of the guys with me, find out the name. Anyway, long story short, the guy gets up and he says, we need to talk, but I got to dive in. Don't leave till we talk. And, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I don't know what you want from me. I don't know who you are. He finishes dive and he comes back and he's with tears in his eyes. He says, a couple of years ago, I had overdosed and I was on the street and you took me to a treatment program and you're help me find the proper assistance. And I'm here celebrating one of the anniversaries, in other words, the annual anniversary of being sober. And I decided that I'm gonna to go to Israel and go to the Kotel and celebrate it at the Kotel. And seeing you by the Kotel as the person who helped me when, when we needed it most, this is such a sign from God. Now I'll tell you a little secret, I still don't know who that person is. I have no idea. I couldn't get his name because I was too embarrassed. What am I going <laughs> to, oh, great. And what's your name? Like, so I never asked him, but that's like one example. Um, there's a, a, another situation, you know, where we had a, a woman right after she got married had called Amudim for help because she wanted to get divorced. And I'll, I'll never forget this. It was uh, about four and a half, five years ago. And uh, I was over listening the case manager's side of the conversation just to, hear what was going on. We're still relatively new. And the storyline was that this woman was married for just a couple of weeks, maybe even a week. I think it was really short. And due to trauma that she suffered, was not able to uh, be a good wife to her husband, in her words. And she felt that he was an innocent bystander in this and didn't want him to suffer and wanted to just get divorced and let him live his life. 
and uh, the case manager and some of the other people involved were able to not only convince her not to, but to get her into therapy and got the husband into therapy. And after a few months, we no longer heard from them, which is very common, you know, once they're over that component that they need us. And I'll never forget about a year later, it was, it was so beautiful when the case manager that was dealing with her starts screaming in the office. It's like, what happened? They're like, remember the case with this person? Yeah. Well, she just called me to tell me she's expecting. She didn't even tell her parents or her in-laws yet. So I remember that was the, the key time that literally hit my head and said, this is not just about helping the individual and helping the people around them, but it's helping untold future generations. And it's stories like that that really keep us going when we see the unbelievable benefits of the fruits of the labor. So that's, you know, that's just two of them, but uh, we have an entire wall in the office called the uh, pillar of appreciation that is Baruch Hashem covered literally with post-it notes or copies of text messages or emails of people that have contacted the staff to thank them after the fact. So it, it really, it's, it's a, it's a schus for me. I tell you the truth. It's a real schus to be able to, it's an honor and it's, it's a privilege. I mean, the fact that people entrusted me and had faith in me and, and being able to do this. And obviously it takes an entire team and the entire staff. And this is not a Tzvi Glock operation. This is without the dedicated staff, we would be nowhere. And I mean that, but it's still, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to be doing this and to be able to help the people that need it. Tzvi Glock founder or co-founder of Amudim. Thank you so, so much for joining us. You got it. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.